Last week I started a series, it's just a two-week series on Samson, and um, if you were here, it was a little bit of a crazy morning, crazy weekend with a Six Flags trip and very little sleep. Um, this morning they've decided to challenge, I, maybe I've decided to challenge myself and then Nate challenged me as well. Um, I've got 88 slides to get through this morning. Last week was 58, this morning's 88. And uh, so I, I'm like, you know what, can I just, is there a way that I can just control this? I'm going to fly through some of these slides. And Nate's like, yeah, just, you know, hook it up on my iPad. I was like, ooh, Really? And last service, I'm holding it, and I almost dropped it. And uh, at, between services, Nate came. He's like, hey, can you uh, leave it in the bracket and uh, just control it from there? Sure, that actually might make it easier. Um, if you have your Bibles, which you should by now, turn to Judges um, chapter 13. We're looking at four chapters, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. And if you have the house Bible, if somebody's already there, what page are you on? Anyone? 246? Right? Okay, 246. Um, we're going to talk about uh, chapters 15 and 16 today. Uh, but last week we covered 13 and 14. And as a little bit of review, I want to explain why I'm doing this. Um, the, the story of Samson is an intriguing story. Uh, I, I hope if you've read it before, you didn't just gloss over and go, well, that was an interesting story. Um, I hope you kind of paused a little bit and asked yourself some questions because there's a lot of questions uh, that should be asked about Samson and his life. And so I wanted to teach on this because I've been fascinated by it for the last year, kind of off and on studying it for a year. And, uh, but more than that, more than just you understanding the story of Samson, that's secondary. That's my second goal. My primary goal is I want you to understand and learn better how to study the scriptures. And so I'm just using Samson as a way to teach you how to study the Bible. Um, because what Bill and I do and other teachers of the word that we do, um, it, it's nothing miraculous. It's nothing supernatural. Um, we've learned over the years how to dig into the scripture, how to, what resources to use. And those are resources that are available at your fingertips. And so when you read the Bible, um, last week, I believe it was in this service, I used the illustration of, of the diving. You can go to the beach and you can sit on the beach and enjoy the view. But then somebody hands you scuba gear and you dive underwater and you discover a whole new world. Uh, you can approach scripture in the same way. You can read it and you can go, Oh, well, that's an interesting story of a guy named Samson. Or you can begin to use some of these tools and dig down deeper under the surface of what you read and discover so much more. And so what I did last week was I started um, just a kind of a verse-by-verse, what's called in in preacher terminology, an exegetical study um, of the book of, of Judges, four chapters in there. And we're just going through Samson's story. So it's a little different if, you're, if you weren't here last week. It's a little different than a normal Sunday morning, uh, which is more topical. This is more maybe a little academic, if you will. I've got 88 slides to prove it. And uh, uh, what I hope is you'll take notes. If you brought your notes from last week, great. Uh, go ahead and pull those out. If not, it's in your bulletin. And uh, let's just take a look. Now, I need to warn you, the one thing about the iPad is you can't really see what's on the screen. All I have is numbers. And so I had to go through and number all my slides. So if I get lost a little bit, forgive me, this is only my second time ever. Last service was the first time, all right? I hope I don't knock that over in my enthusiasm. Um, let's have a little review, though. When you study scripture, there's a few things you need to pay attention to. Uh, the historical and geographical context. Uh, when was this taking place in history, and where is it taking place? You need to look at major themes, and we're going to get to that here in a little bit. Uh, you need to look at the meaning of names. Names are important. Words have meaning, and discover those meanings. You need to look at some original languages, the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, you need to look at connected texts. Are there any other scriptures that relate to what we're talking about? Um, and then you need to ask yourself some questions, and are there tensions that exist in what you're studying? And for Samson, there should be a lot of tensions that exist. 
Um, as a point of review, if you weren't here last Sunday, uh, the idea of the judges, it's after Moses and Joshua, but before King Saul and King David. And so nation, you know, of Israel um, sins greatly in the eyes of God. God hands them over to a foreign oppressor. Uh, the nation cries out to God, and God raises up an individual called a judge who leads Israel into a time of peace. Now, what we learned last week is interesting about Samson is the nation of Israel sins. God hands them over to the Philistines. The people don't cry out. They're content being led by the Philistines, which is really important when we study what we're studying today. But God raises up Samson anyway as a judge to set them free. So God raises up these, these leaders uh, to raise them free. Samson, we learned last week, is the last of 12 judges. Um, his name means of the light. If you didn't, weren't here last week or you didn't write that down, write that down because that'll be critical here in a few moments. Samson's name means of the light. And Samson, we know, was born uh, to Manoah and his wife, and he was set apart with what type of vow? Nazarite vow, which had, pop quiz, three components to it. What were they? Don't drink. Don't drink. Don't eat grapes. Don't eat raisins. Don't go near vineyards, right? Okay. Number two, don't cut your hair. Number three, don't touch anything dead. We get that from number six, all right? And we've already seen Samson um, strike out a little bit here. Strike one, lion's carcass. Remember, he, he killed the lion, and we went back to Timnah to marry his, his wife, um, he travels aside and sees the honey in there, so he reaches into the carcass, eats the honey, violates one part of his Nazarite vow, goes to Timnah, throws a seven-day party, uh, wedding feast. The, the word in our NIV Bible is feast. In Hebrew, it's drinking bout. So it was seven-day drinking fest uh, that he threw. And so strike two, violated his Nazarite vow by drinking. Some major themes that we saw last week. The eyes, and the eyes today will be critical. Pay attention to eyes today as we look at Judges 15 and 16. Uh, respect for authority. He had a lack of respect for his parents and ultimately a lack of respect for God who has ultimate authority over him. Temptation was huge, and we're going to see that again today. Time and time again, Samson puts himself in places of temptation. And then last week, I used the phrase self-righteous anger, but as I was studying this week, I think a better word for that is revenge, and it's actually a word that we see come out in the scriptures today. And so these are four major themes uh, that we see in the story of Samson. So let's pick up. Samson uh, was born. Uh, the Holy Spirit began to stir him, compel him, thrust him. Um, he, he went down to Timnah, which was a place that was forbidden, went near a vineyard, killed the lion, went back, married the woman. Um, how, many, how many friends did Samson bring with him to the wedding feast? It's his wedding. How many of his own friends did he bring? Zero. Zero. This will be important here in a few moments. He, he has actually given 30 friends. Philistine, the enemy, he's given 30 friends. And he poses a riddle to him. He says, if you can answer this riddle in seven days, um, I will give you 30 uh, fine garments of clothing. And if you can't answer it, then you owe me. So they end up going to his wife. We know that from last week. Um, she nags him and nags him and nags him. That's a scripture. That's not me. I would never say my wife nags me. Um, I'm just, all right, we'll move on. Um, so, so she nags him and cries for seven days. And finally, he says, gives her the answer. And she goes and gives it to the 30 men. They come back. He understands that they went to his wife. He goes down to Ashkelon, kills 30 men, takes them their clothes, brings them back, give it to him. And then he leaves in anger. Like he just forgets essentially that he has a wife. Like he leaves him and goes back to his hometown. He's mad. He's sulking. And he's just, he's back home. Uh, here we pick up in chapter 15. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat, went to visit his wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend, his best man. Isn't her younger sister more attractive anyway? Take her instead. Great father, right? 
I mean, come on. Do you want this guy as your dad? Um, dad, really? You're just going to hand me over to this guy? But here's the deal. In that culture, Samson had already paid the bride price uh, for his first wife. And so his father-in-law felt it was only appropriate or necessary to make a counterproposal. And so he says, take my, take my daughter, my other daughter. Um, isn't she more attractive? Well, Samson gets really mad at this. And he says, he doesn't get mad at his father-in-law, which is interesting. He gets mad at the Philistines. And he says to his father-in-law, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. Again, we see the major theme of revenge come out. So here's a really interesting part of Samson's story. So how's he going to exact revenge? Well, he goes out and he captures what Scripture tells us is 300 foxes. Um, now, the, the Hebrew word there is shual, which is actually a jackal. And jackals are known to travel in packs, and so maybe this is how he did it. But he goes out and he catches 300 uh, foxes, ties their tails together, puts a lit torch between them, and then sets them loose in the grain of, of, the, of the Philistines in the vineyards, burns down everything that they own, uh, essentially causes major economic loss uh, for the Philistines. Remember, it's the harvest time. Uh, so he destroys their livelihood. For an entire year, they've been growing these crops. And all of a sudden, in one act of vengeance, Samson wipes that out completely. So you've got to know that the Philistines are going to be mad about this. But I have some questions and observations. How in the world do you catch 300 foxes? Right? I mean, I hope you didn't read that and go, oh, okay, he caught 300 foxes. You know? Uh, how do you do that? I mean, is that even possible? Surely this is kind of fictitious. This is made up. Um, whoever wrote the story of Samson kind of, hey, let's elaborate this. Let's make it a little grander and say he caught 300 foxes rather than just walking around with a torch and setting their fields on fire, right? So we're going to do this in grandiose fashion. Here's the problem. History tells us that at one point, Emperor Silla caught 100 lions and released them in, in the uh, arena. Uh, Caesar caught 400 lions and released those. Uh, Pompey caught 600 lions. It gets better. Emperor Probus, at one point, one event released a thousand ostriches, a thousand deer, a thousand does, and a thousand boars in the arena. Evidently, just to see what would happen. All right? I don't know why. I'm not, I don't understand the entertainment of, of the Romans, but, you know, he did that. Another time, same emperor, uh, he liked his animals. He released a hundred lepers from Libya, a hundred lepers from Syria, and 300 bears into the arena just to see what would happen. So, history tells us it is possible to gather 300 foxes. All right, if these guys can capture these bears and lions and ostriches and all that stuff. But here's what's interesting. Notice there's no specific reference to the Holy Spirit giving him the ability to do this. One of the, what I would call the, the major feats of Samson's life, the Holy Spirit is not evidently present in the scriptures. It doesn't say. As opposed to other times when the lion rushed on him, it says the Holy Spirit came on him in power. When he went down to Ashkelon and killed the 30, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him in power. What we're going to see here in another reference is that the Holy Spirit comes on him in power. But when he collects 300 foxes, there's evidently no reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, some theologians propose that, number one, he employed the help of others. And number two, we read it and we go, well, he went out one afternoon and caught 300 foxes. No, probably didn't do it all at once. All right? Here's my personal opinion on that. How many friends did Samson bring to the wedding? Zero. How many times do we see Samson working alongside other people? Zero. Later on in life, the people that are closest to him, we'll see this in a few moments, uh, 3,000 men of Judah who are supposed to be leaders, uh, you'll discover here in a few moments, they capture him and turn him over. Nobody likes Samson. Samson was stirring things up. So why in the world would his own people help him collect 300 foxes to cause major economic loss? 
I think this is bunk. I don't like this idea that these, these theologians propose. Now, this is just Chris Jenner's little old me um, saying this. Here's what I think we need to under, Here's why I think this story is included in there. It foreshadows a future event in Samson's life. What we're going to see here in a few moments is that at the end of Samson's life, he destroys the temple of their god, Dagon. Now, uh, he's one of the primary gods of the Philistines. Get this. I love this. Dagon means grain. So here at this point in Samson's life, he takes the foxes, wipes out all of their grain. At the end of his life, he knocks down the temple of the god of grain, destroying grain. These two events are similar, they're connected. And we're going to see this here in a few moments. There's some really cool parallel connections between earlier in Samson's life and later on in Samson's life. And maybe you don't think they're cool, maybe it's just me and I'm a geek. But I think these are awesome. So, when the Philistines ask... The college students snicker and grin up here. When the Philistines asked, they're like, okay, wait, we just lost all of our crops. Who did this to them? Um, Samson, his, his father-in-law and everybody says it was Samson who married the Timnite because his wife was given to her friend. And so the Philistines, great people that they are, they don't take it out on Samson. They go back to the Timnite and Samson's wife and burn them to death. We see again revenge, but this time from the Philistine side, not from Samson's. But Samson doesn't stop there. He says, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. Again, revenge. Samson wanted revenge. You remember last week, we talked about his wife. He said, she's the right one for me, is what he tells his parents. She's the right one in my eyes. All right, Samson wants revenge for what's right in his eyes. A little alert there. It's a little foreshadowing. We'll unpack that here in a few moments. So he attacks him viciously. The Hebrew says hip and thigh, which is an interesting phrase. It was a euphemism for really brutal, brutal, violent um, tendencies. I mean, not just, he didn't have a sword. He didn't have a weapon. It was hand-to-hand combat, and it was brutal. It was bloody. And he goes out, and it doesn't say how many he kills. It just says he slaughtered many of them. And so we see this idea of escalating violence. He goes from killing one, the lion, to killing 30, the men of Ashkelon, and now in revenge to who knows how many. We don't really know. But he realizes he's kind of caused some problems here. And so he goes down and stays in a cave in the rock of Etam. Uh, the Philistines uh, went up and camped in Judah. And the men of Judah asked the Philistines, Whoa, why have you come here? Why have you come against us? And then they said, We've come to take Samson uh, prisoner. They answered, To do to him what he did to us. And so how do the men of Judah respond? They know where Samson's hiding. And rather than immediately telling the Philistines, they go down to capture him themselves. So they go down and they said, don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? What are you trying to do? What have you done to us? Who are the men of Judah? Remember last week we said that the tribe of Judah, uh, when Jacob blessed his son Judah, what did he say about his son Judah? Anybody remember? Lion's whelp, you will be the ruler. You will lead the nation of Israel. The men of Judah are the ones that are supposed to be filling that leadership uh, role, not Samson. And they're the ones who are supposed to be leading, who go down and take their leader and sacrifice him. Basically say, what are you doing? We're fine with the Philistines ruling over us, which they shouldn't have been, because that's why God raised up judges. And they say, we want to take you, and we're going to hand you over to them. And so Samson says, listen, as long as you swear to me, you're not going to kill me yourselves. I will become your prisoner. Interesting observation. Notice that the 3,000 men of Judah knew Samson's power. 
they knew that he had power to, to dominate over even those 3,000 men of Judah. And so they essentially come up to him, kind of cowering a little bit, and they say, would you please come with us? Can we, can we tie you up? Is that okay? I mean, they're begging permission to hand over their leader because they know how powerful Samson is. And Samson says, as long as you don't kill me, I'll, I'll let you take me. So they tie him up. They take him to a place called Lehi. And as they're approaching Lehi, the Philistines came shouting out towards him. You might know other times somebody came shouting out or roaring towards him. Just like the young lion did in the vineyards of Timnah. The young lion came roaring out at him. Samson becomes overpowered with the Holy Spirit and rips the lion apart. Same thing here. The Philistine army comes at him, rushing and shouting at him. And the scripture, the text tells us the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes in his arm became like flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey. What's the problem there? It's dead. He's touching another carcass, breaking his Nazarite vow again. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabs and he strikes down a thousand men. Again, escalating violence. One to thirty to who knows how many to a thousand. Now, whenever I kill a thousand men, I get a little thirsty. And, and so we see a little bit. I'm glad the high schoolers and college students got that. Um, so he gets a little thirsty. And there's only two times that Samson prays in the scripture that we have recorded. And this is the first one. He, he's very thirsty. He cries out to the Lord, You've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Um, as I said, this is the first of only two prayers. But notice the focus of his prayer. Is the focus of his prayer on God? Or is it on himself? Look at the words again. You have given me this great victory. Must I now die of thirst, and I fall into the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines. It's not, God, you've done an incredible thing here. And, you know, if I were to die, that's kind of shame on, on you for letting me die after I accomplished this for you. So give me water, God, and you will be glorified. No, it was, I'm thirsty, me, 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 me. It was all selfish prayer. And then we have this verse, Judges fifteen twenty. It kind of concludes the story of Samson's leadership. It just very plainly says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, as some men do in retirement, he gets bored. So he's done leading, but he, there's more to Samson's story. So we pick up in chapter 16. He goes to a little place called Gaza. Gaza. Um, here's a map for you. He goes from his hometown near Zor and Eshtail, travels down through the Philistine area. Remember this plain area here is the Philistine territory. The hill country is where the Israelites live. Goes down to Gaza, which is 45 miles away. Now, uh, I discovered this this week. I didn't really, in all this time that I've studied this, I never asked myself the question, what does Gaza mean? In Hebrew, the word Gaza is Aza, and it means strong. And you'll see why that's important here in just a moment. So he goes down to Gaza. He sees a woman that he likes. He gets a new girlfriend. Again, still living by his eyes, what's right in his eyes. The Philistines hear that he's in their town. And they, they, they surround the town. They say, we're going to capture him at dawn when he comes out of the city. Well, somehow, you know, well, first of all, they're still driven by revenge. But somehow, Samson hears about this. And he gets up in the middle of the night, and he proceeds to rip out the city gate of Gaza and carry it away. Now, let's talk a little bit about city gates. Um, city gates are not small little picket fence gates, okay? It's not something that I could lift up. City gates are stone pillars, bars that go across that are possibly made of metal, huge doors. I mean, these are protective barriers to keep invading armies out, all right? Samson gets up in the middle of the night, rips this thing out. Some, some commentaries say it weighs about two ton, okay? Rips it out, puts it on his shoulders, and he carries it to a nearby town. 
notice in the scripture there is no reference to the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Interesting, too, that one of his greatest feats of physical strength occurs in a town called Strong. Now, where did he go? He gets up in the middle of the night, rips out the city gate, uh, takes away the protection of the city called Strong, so now they're weak, and he carries this thing to a hill uh, that faces Hebron. Now, I want to know what's significant about Hebron. Well, it's up here in the hill country. It's 40 miles away from Gaza, 3,300 feet elevation gain. Samson, carrying a two-ton <laughs> gate on his shoulders, walks 40 miles through the night, 3,300 feet elevation gain, to plop it down on this hill that faces the city of Hebron. I want to know why Hebron. Hebron was the chief city of Judah. The very people who turned him over to the Philistines. I think this is a little bit of Samson saying to the, to the men of Judah, remember me? You sold me out years ago. I haven't forgotten you. I'm still here. I still got power. And what are you going to do about it? I think it's a little slap in the face to the men of Judah because they were the ones who were supposed to be leading. They weren't leading. They were the ones that turned him over when they were supposed to rally behind him. Is that cool to anybody else than me? All right. Yeah, good. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. But he's not satisfied with that girlfriend. So later on at some point in life, he travels down to a, he falls in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, uh, whose name was Delilah. Uh, now, Sorek in Hebrew is Sorek with a Q, and it means choice vines, choice grapes. Again, major theme of temptation. Samson puts himself in a place of temptation. Now, here's an interesting fact. Delilah is the only woman in the entire story of Samson whose name we know. We don't know his mom's name. It just says Manoah and his wife. We don't know the name of his first wife. We don't know the name of his girlfriend in Gaza. We only know the name of this woman in Sorek named Delilah. Um, I want to know why. Delilah means weak and of the night. If you contrast that, Samson is known for his strength. His name means of the light. Delilah, the only woman that we know of in his story, the only name we know, her name means weak or of the night. They're polar opposites. And yet Samson still goes to her. Well, the rulers of the Philistines, they learn that he's there. And they come to Delilah and say, you know, if you will discover the reasons for his strength, we'll pay you lots and lots of money. Find out how to subdue him, we'll capture him, and we're going to give you lots and lots of money. So from the get-go, his new girlfriend is selling him out. She obviously doesn't love him, but he's enamored with her, he's infatuated with her, um, but something there. Now, here's what's interesting. Why did they have to ask, find the source of his physical strength? Well, they wanted to destroy him, but why did they have to discover it? I think because it wasn't readily apparent. I don't know that Samson was a naturally muscular man. I think one of the things that God does did, and this is all conjecture, okay? But if he was a naturally muscular man, if he was a bodybuilder, if he's Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the Philistines, they're not going to look at him and go, hey, where does he get so strong from? How is he so strong? They're going to know. It was like right away, okay, look at this dude. He's like bigger and huge. I mean, he's like 10 feet tall. He can lift heavy things. That's where his strength comes from. But they have to enlist the help of Delilah to say, figure out where he, why he's so strong. It doesn't make sense to us. Figure this out. And so maybe, possibly, Maybe he wasn't a naturally muscular man. Again, that's all conjecture. Delilah comes to him, says, Samson, why are you so strong? You know, and I'm sure she said it in a much more loving and cooing way than that. Um, but why, why, where's your strength come from? 
And he toys with her a little bit. And he says, you know, if, if, if somebody were to use seven fresh thongs of leather and bind me up with that, um, I'd lose all my strength. And so as he's asleep one night, she does that and then calls in the Philistines who are waiting in her house. And they come in and they, she screams, the Philistines are upon you. And he rises up, breaks the thongs, overpowers the Philistines. A couple weeks later, she says, you don't really love me. You didn't tell me the truth. Why, how, what would happen? Like, what do I have to do to make you weak? Like, how, how do you become weak? What's your kryptonite, if you will? Um, and he says, well, you know, if new ropes that have never been used on anybody were used on me, I'll lose all my strength. And so she ties him up with new ropes while he's asleep. And Philistines come in. She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Acting surprised. And then he over, breaks the ropes, overpowers him. Third time she comes. And she says, you really don't love me. And he says, you know what? Um, if you weave the seven braids of my hair uh, into a loom, which we always picture Samson having this long flowing hair, right? No, it was like I don't, dreadlocked, maybe like seven, you know, dreads that he had on his head. And he says, if you take those seven and you put them into a weave and then in a loom, then I'll be overpowered. My, my strength will leave me. So she does that. And, and, and you know, and the same thing happens. Philistines come in. I got to ask myself, why in the world is he still with this woman? You know, it's like every time she asks, how do you get overpowered? Suddenly, hmm, the Philistines are upon me. And I have to, you know, again, he's just toying with temptation time and time again. Finally, she says, how can you say you love me? You haven't told me. And with such nagging, she prodded him day. This is scripture. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. Here's an interesting observation. This is now the second woman that nagged him ceaselessly to discover a secret about him. And as a result, he reveals it and is betrayed. He goes on and he says, you know what? I'll tell you everything. And no razor has ever been used in my head because I'm a Nazarite set apart from God. And so he goes on to explain what this Nazarite vow is all about. And so she proceeds to put him to sleep, calls in a barber, they shave his head, um, Strike three. Lion's carcass, drinking wine, cuts his hair. In one of the, what I think is one of the most sad verses in all of Scripture. When the Philistines rush in upon him, he wakes up, and the text tells us that he had no idea that the Lord had left him. He was oblivious to the fact that he'd violated his own Nazarite vow. What set him apart, what was so unique to him, he had no clue that he'd just betrayed that. So the Philistines come in. They seize him. They gouge out his eyes, take out both of his eyes. Uh, they take him down to Gaza, where the city called Strong, where he ripped out the gate. And binding with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. Again, we see the major theme of the eyes. But this time, because they took his eyes, Samson can no longer live by what was right in his eyes. He can't see anymore. He's dependent on others. And he's humbled. He's humiliated. Another observation, darkness overcame light. If we were to bring all the lights down in this, in this room kill everything, and I lit a single candle, that candle would still cast enough light in here that we can move about. Light always, always overcomes darkness. And yet here in Samson and Delilah, Delilah being of the night overcomes Samson who is of the light. Notice also that Samson's given the task of grinding grain, the very thing that he destroyed earlier in his life. They didn't want to just kill him, okay? When the Philistines captured him, they didn't want to just take him out. They wanted to humiliate him. So they gouge out his eyes, who he can't see anymore. He's dependent on somebody else. The, the strong has become weak. He's put to grinding grain. And, and I'm sure they've got to jeer him at some point. You remember when you killed our, took out our harvest? Yeah, now you're making, you know, you're helping us. 
you're going to grind grain for us. And in one of the most promising verses of all of Scripture, it says, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, if I'm the Philistines, and I, this guy has been a, a thorn in our side for years, all right? We finally figured out what causes him to be weak. We know that he can overpower thousands and thousands of men single-handedly. If, if I'm a Philistine and Samson's in my prison and his hair starts to grow, I'm snipping it off. Like, I'm shaving this dude's head every day, right? But what do we see the Philistines do? They throw a party one day for their God and celebrate the capture. They've let his hair grow back. They know that he's strong again. And it says, while they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he began to perform these incredible feats of strength for them. And I want to pick up here in Judges 16, 26. It says, when they stood among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. And now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. And then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Uh, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on this Philistine for my two eyes. And then Samson reaches toward the two central pillars on which the temple, rest, the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. And thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. So we see again escalating violence. One lion, 30 men of Ashkelon, unknown number of men in revenge, a thousand men rushing at him, and now 3,000 in the temple. Samson prays to God. Only the second time. And again, it's self-centered. I, I think at one level, he understood now where his power came from. Because he was humbled. And he prays to God for the strength. And, and, and for whatever reason, God answers his prayer. Um, I, I think I know why. But notice that what his prayer, the focus of his prayer, why does he want God to give him the strength? Because he wants revenge for his two eyes being taken from him. Earlier in his life, he wanted revenge for his wife being killed, what was right in his eyes. Now he wants revenge for taking out his physical, literal eyes. Notice again, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit coming upon him in power. One of the greatest feats of physical strength in, recorded in Samson's life, and yet the Holy Spirit doesn't, it doesn't explicitly say uh, that he was present. So that led me to ask the question, what were all the feats of strength and which ones had the Holy Spirit and which ones didn't? Well, here's, ends up there's roughly seven, basically seven um, feats of strength that Samson performs. Uh, three of them on the left side over here, one lion rushing, 30 men of Ashkelon, 1,000 Philistines with a jawbone. Those all explicitly say the Holy Spirit rushed upon him in power and he did those things. Four over here, catching 300 foxes, killing who knows how many Philistines, ripping out the gates of Gaza, taking the city of Hebron, uh, destroying the temple of Dagon and 3,000 leaders. None of those explicitly say the Holy Spirit rushed upon him in power. And I want to know why. Why just those three? Why not the other four? Or why any of them? You know, couldn't we just say that the, he had the Holy Spirit upon him his whole life? And, and I don't really have an answer for you. Much like the lion last week, and I don't really know what to do with that completely, I don't know why only three of the seven uh, do, does the Holy Spirit come on him in power. I have some theories, but we don't have time to get into that this morning. But I'm curious as to why. But we know that in one final blow, Samson defeats the Philistines. He kills all of their leaders. 
And God's original plan, why he raised up Samson to overthrow the leadership of the Philistines, takes place. And I think that's why God answers his prayer. And so we see here at the end of Samson's life, after everything that he did wrong, after all of his weakness, everything that God's accomplishes are still, or God's purposes are still accomplished, which to me gives us hope. Because we're weak, because we fail, because we don't always pursue what God would want us to pursue. And yet we know that God can still use us, even in those moments. I think Samson's story is a, Samson, is a story of tragedy, but also great hope. Now, here's some interesting parallels. Wife betrays, Delilah betrays. One lion rushing, a thousand men rushing. Thirty men of Ashkelon, three thousand rulers of Gaza. Destroys the fields of grain, destroys the temple of the grain god. Three thousand men of Judah who are supposed to be the leaders uh, versus three thousand rulers of Philistine who were the leaders. Uh, scripture is very poetic. There, there's, this, there's this ebb and flow to it, and, and you begin to see it when you see these parallels like this. And so we'd encourage you to study scripture, um, look at some of those parallels. Now we know that Samson was the last of 12 judges. So what legacy did he leave for future generations? And we know that there's no more judges after that. So what does the nation of Israel look like? There's now a leadership vacuum. The Philistines are no longer ruling over them. Uh, surely these 3,000 men of Judah, they've got the lesson now. They understand they're going to step into this leadership vacuum and lead the nation of Israel. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen. And judges, the rest of judges, 17 through 21, is possibly some of the bloodiest in Israelite history. And the very last verse, I find this extremely, extremely interesting. The very last verse of Judges is that in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit, which in Hebrew is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samson lived by his eyes. Samson did what was right in his eyes. And the legacy that he left was a nation that continued to do what was right in his own eyes. Now, there's a little tension that I have. We know that Samson's name appears in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. If you know that, that book, you know that Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. And it's men and women throughout history that were commended by the writer of Hebrews for their faith and the incredible things they did for God. And I'm going, okay, we just spent all this time looking at the failings and the trappings of Samson. And all, yeah, God accomplished his purposes, but Samson is not the right character that I would put in my hall of faith, right? Uh, here's what the scriptures say in Hebrews 11. Uh, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. And it goes on and lists some things they did. And, and the one that many theologians think is connected with Samson in this list is, is whose weakness was turned to strength. Uh, Samson's weakness in all the areas that he was weak turned to strength for God's purposes and accomplished. Now, we know that Barak refused to go to battle. Barak was a judge, under, or was a, a military leader, general of the nation of Israel, um, under the leadership of Deborah, who was one of the judges. And Deborah calls him out and says, go and invade this army. And Barak says, no, not going to go. And, and she, she, he says, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. And she says, fine, I'll go with you, but now the honor and glory of conquering this, this nation is not going to be yours. It's going to go to somebody else. And it, it did. We know that Gideon demonstrated a lack of faith early in his ministry. He questioned God. At the end of his life, he built this, this ephod that became an idol for the entire nation of Israel that they bowed down to rather than bowing down to God. And we know that David committed adultery and murder, and yet they're listed in the hall of faith as well. These aren't exactly the most moral and upright people listed in this hall of faith. And so here we see Samson in there. See, I think Hebrews 11 is more about God than about those people. It's about what God can do through people, whether they have a little bit of faith or a whole lot of faith. 
I think we need to reorient our understanding of Hebrews 11 to look at it from God, at God, rather than those people. What is it that God was able to accomplish through them? Now, as means of personal application, where do we go with this? Because we've got to take something from the story of Samson. And, and what I hope that you see is there's so many possible connections with our life, if we're honest with ourselves. How often do we let our selfish desires or our eyes lead us away from God? That was Samson's life, and he was characterized by that. How often does that happen in our life? How often do we put ourselves in places of temptation, places that we know that we're going to be tempted to violate Scripture or to do opposite of what God would have us do in our lives? How often do we willingly just walk that line? And I don't need to unpack those for you. You know what those are. How often do we seek revenge rather than grant forgiveness? How often when somebody does wrong to us, do we immediately go, I'm just doing back what you did to me. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. How often instead do we go, I'm going to forgive you. You hurt me deeply, painfully. But my Savior Jesus says to forgive. He demonstrated that. So I'll forgive you. How often do we pray selfish prayers? How often are our prayers all about us and what we want rather than what God would want in this world? And how often do we pursue glory for ourselves rather than glory for God? We do something to be seen by others and to be praised by them, just what the Pharisees did in the New Testament versus just doing things in secret so that God sees and God can reward us on the other side of eternity. How often do we do that? How often are we like Samson? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.